Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Science Fiction. I'm Rob Wolf, host of the show that brings you conversations with writers of everything from space opera to dystopias to cli-fi to mysteries set on other planets and other dimensions. Science fiction is a broad and generous genre, which is one of the many things that makes it so great. This is the Who Gives You Hope edition. And with me for his second go-around on the pod is Mike Chen, who is here to talk about his new novel, A Beginning at the End, which follows the relationship of four people, three adults and a precocious kid in a post-pandemic San Francisco, all of whom have built their lives around, well, all but the precocious kid who have built their lives around big secrets that start to fall apart as their lives become intertwined. Mike's first book, Here and Now and Then, came out in January 2019, almost exactly a year ago, in fact, and it received lots of praise, including being a semifinalist in the Goodreads Choice Awards. And it's a pleasure to have him back with me on the show from his home in the Bay Area. Hey, Mike, welcome back. Hey, Rob, thank you so much for having me. I I love your podcast, and I'm glad to be back. Well, I'm very happy to have you back. When we spoke last year, you were a newbie author, and now you're a a wizened, wise veteran. (laughs) Yeah, I I was just talking with a a friend who's debuting this year, uh, and she goes, can you believe it's been less than a year since you've debuted, and now you're like talking at cons and, you know, like being mentors to people about that. And I'm like, yeah, it's, it feels very brief but it also feels very long it's very strange that that's i think the the easiest way i can sum up the last 12 months is it's very strange well have you picked up any lessons or things that you learned over the past year that going forward as you promote your second book and just moving forward in your career maybe things that you do differently i you know i think i i tell people when they're coming up on their debut cycle that the the most important thing is to lean on your peers because publishing is such a strange industry and, and the, the stuff that happens behind the scenes with, with uh, debut and marketing and publicity and stuff, no one really talks about it because if you talk about it publicly, it kind of gives away how, I guess, how, how much support you're actually getting. Um, so you talk about it with your peers who have been through it. Um, so like before you sign with an agent and before you get a, a deal, it's like, it's not, you know, things that you understand. But if you talk with your friends who have recently debuted in like the past year or two, it's fresh for them. So I, I, I just tell them to, to lean on your peers. And I think it's been really, really pleasant finding out that the, um, the sci-fi community that at least I've interfaced with um, has just been inclusive and welcoming and awesome in like kind of a punk rock way. You know, you think about sci-fi has so many stereotypes of like, 
uh, you know, like the crusty old white dude who's gatekeeping because you haven't read enough Asimov, you know, that type of thing. And, and I haven't encountered much of that at all. It's really just been lovely people who've been willing to, to help out and give advice. And I'm just trying to pay forward at every opportunity. Well, that is a lovely endorsement of the field and of all your peers. That's been my experience, too, with all of the wonderful guests I've been lucky to have on the podcast. And and I'm lucky enough to call many of the guests, like Kay Chess and uh, Hannah Perry and Charlie Jane Anders. Like they've, I've, you know, talked with a lot of them online, and we've hung out at like the Nebulas and stuff. And they're all just the best people. It's you really do get the best guests. Well, thank you. A beginning at the end takes place after a major pandemic kills about seventy percent of the world's population. And it's set in the very, very near future, just around the corner, right? Yeah, it's uh, it takes place in 2025. The events of the pandemic take place around like 2019, uh, and like the the quarantine periods and uh, the the chaos really is 2019, 2020-ish. This was actually originally set in like uh like the, the present day timeline would be 2020 instead of 2025 and so i originally wrote this in 2011 so when i wrote it 2020 seemed very near future and then when it actually came time to the publication date you know i was thinking oh this is a coincidence it's actually going to be pubbed the year that it takes place and my editor had suggested making it near future just to give it that little bit of you know breaking a part of the timeline from our own current hellscape, a different kind of apocalypse. So that's why the book takes place in 2025 instead of 2020. So why did you decide to keep it, though, in in the near, near future? It's not just the near future. It's very close. The idea of the story that I wanted to examine was essentially if um, if it was our lives, but something absolutely catastrophic happened, and you you try to pick up after that. You know, So there's a lot of like far future dystopian or apocalyptic where, you know, it's like Mad Max or whatever. And like, it's not even recognizable. And the story that I wanted to tell that I thought would be really interesting is what if infrastructure and all the things that, that we've come to rely on is still existent in some form, but 70% of the people in the world are just gone. And so what you're left with is not a survival tale, but a trauma tale. So rather than, like there's so much post-apocalyptic fiction where it's just tribal warfare of people killing each other for like food and resources and stuff. And uh, I wanted to try something really different from that and, and examine something where like our lives on the surface feel very similar to what we experience now, but underneath is just the trauma of having gone through a cataclysm and how would that play out? And then the world building kind of just built out from that, idea it was like okay if we're going to do that then how do you practically make that happen and then what are the actual repercussions of like if you have a surface level similarity but then a lot of the guts of day-to-day life would not be the same so communication transportation things like that so that's where like the the world building started and everything just kind of built out from there let's talk about your main characters you have two women a single dad and his seven-year-old daughter. Mm-hmm. Can you sketch them out a little bit for our listeners? And and let me just say before you go on, I'm partial to books with main characters whose names are Rob, which is not something I encounter very much. 
<laughs> so uh so okay we'll 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 break down the character naming then just for just for kicks if any readers or any podcast listeners listen to a lot of indie and college rock bands in the 90s you will recognize most of these names because they're taken from a lot of bands out of like the the new england indie rock scene in the, like the late 80s early 90s and this was just a an arbitrary choice that i made because i'm really bad at naming and and so i just grab like a group of things that i really love and i just name things after it rob uh, so remember i was I was originally drafting this in like 2011, 2012, and one of my biggest writing inspirations is uh, Nick Hornby. And so Rob is from High Fidelity. His last name Donnelly is Tanya Donnelly, who is a singer-songwriter who is with bands called Throwing Muses and The Breeders and Belly. Um, So Rob is a single dad who is harboring a really terrible secret to his seven-year-old daughter. His wife died when they were in quarantine, and he could not break it to his daughter at the time. And so he's told her that she's still alive and in treatment. And as his daughter is becoming more aware of the world around them and starting to ask questions, Rob is trying to figure out, at some point, he has to reconcile this. Uh, and that's where we start things off with the story. The other lead who was always the lead in the 2011 draft, so Rob and Krista were the two leads. Krista Deal is an event planner in this new world. And when I first drafted this story, like there were a few different ideas that were running through my head. And one of them was try to take the most, I guess, unnecessary job in today's world, like first world problem type of job and throw it into the apocalypse and see what could happen. And so I came up with the pitch of a wedding planner in the apocalypse, because I mean, when you think about it, like that's not something that you really need. It's just a complete first world luxury. But then building it outward about with someone with, with those types of skills of, I guess, empathy and organization and, and communication, why would they need to exist in a post-apocalyptic world? And in this world, it, it just totally lined up where this is a post-pandemic world. Everyone is shell-shocked. And so they grip onto normalcy wherever they can find it. And the most normal thing in the world is to fall in love and get married. People will do that mostly out of stability rather than, you know, pure romance and love. But then in this world, the idea is, well, you don't have the Internet, really. So you can't really just like book things online. You can't email like the hotel that you want to take place at. So you have to have face-to-face interactions. And everyone in this world is terrified. Um, You see in the opening scenes that people are wearing breathing masks for fear of any new germs. And there's just kind of this distance that people keep with crowds and each other. And so what Krista Deal, named after Kim Deal, a bassist of the Pixies and uh, singer of the Breeders, Krista is fearless. She doesn't care. She's willing to go do those things. And that's her advantage in this world. That fearlessness comes from growing up as a child of an alcoholic and experiencing her own level of trauma and just building up so many shields that uh, she just doesn't care. She has her cynicism. She has her own self-confidence, which is all a shield. And so she wishes people would just get over the end of the world. As an event planner, you know, when planning a wedding, there's some of the usual things you have to do, but you also have to make sure everyone has the right face masks, just like you said. I mean, that's kind of an extra twist to her role. Yeah, and I thought that was really interesting to explore how people are going to strive for normalcy in any sort of 
major paradigm shift. They're going to go back to like the traditions that they were brought up with. It's, you know, it's comforting. And so to be able to extrapolate that into an apocalyptic setting, there's a lot of interesting world building that you could, you can tell stories with. There's a scene really early on inside the school for Rob's daughter, Sunny, and they're walking through there and Krista notices that like they have these cartoon diagrams on the walls of like how to put on a gas mask, which is not that different from when you think about like we have preschool. My daughter goes through shooting drills at her preschool. It's totally messed up. But that's the type of thing that you build out into this changed world. Yeah, it isn't too far from the way we live now when you think about some of the crazy things our kids are exposed to. Should I go on with the the rest of the characters? Yeah, talk about, I guess, Moira. Yes. So the other main adult lead is Moira Gorman, who is one of the most uh, interesting and fun characters that I've written to date, because she starts out life, as you see in the prologue, as a pop star named Mojo. She's on her second album, which is Struggling, and uh, she's under a lot of pressure as a teen musician. And when the pandemic hits, when the quarantines hit and chaos descends, she sees it as an opportunity to finally have a life for herself. So when we meet her in the beginning, uh, she is just trying to have as normal of a life as possible. And what she construes as normal in her mind is an office job and a, a husband that she doesn't really love, but is very pleasant to, um, or a fiance that is just very pleasant and they have a very steady life. And then the chaos of the book happens. It's interesting that Moira is a pop star who doesn't want to be a pop star. So she actually embraces the pandemic as an opportunity. I mean, she uses it as a way to extricate herself from this relationship she has with her father, who's kind of like a stage father. Right. And that's um, in the prologue that kicks off the story. You see that shift in there right away as she starts to recognize that this is an opportunity that if everything's going to end, then she's going to go out on her terms. I was asked the other day if uh, if because I used to play in bands like 15 years ago, um, if that was based on my own experience in, in bands. And it, it was definitely not because we never escaped the circuit of playing to half empty bars. But I I've always found fascinating, like when it was behind the music in like the the late '90s, early 2000s, like where they profiled these these artists who were you know really popular in probably their teens and 20s, and then they go back and they reflect on it in their 30s and 40s, and most of them just hated the experience. It's like you hear them talk about how the schedule and the publicity and the need for perfection and everything just basically broke them as people. And I found that to be really fascinating because it's this thing that on the surface brings so much joy to a lot of people. And then immediately when they leave the stage, they're like doing drugs or you know drinking or doing whatever to just escape the fact that they're under constant pressure and generally are removed from the people who give them genuine emotional support. So that's where Moira's character comes from. And the name Gorman is named after the Gorman brothers who played drum and guitar in a variety of bands in the New England area, too. Well, there's a clear musical connection there with Moira as a, as a pop star, as Mojo the pop star. Yeah. And you got me to look up the word parkour, which I know I've heard before and I had a vague sense of, but that's something that Moira uses uh a kind of gymnastic technique without equipment because she travels the country with a 
with a gang. And it makes me want to write my own book with someone who can do it because it just sounds really cool. <laughs> so the, the book is structured. Um, so there's a lot of flashbacks in there to try to get a sense of what the quarantine life was like. But then for Moira, who you have uh, Krista and Rob who were in separate quarantines in the country, and then Moira who chose to live outside of that and scavenge and forage and basically make their way across the country. And one of the skills that the, one of the leaders in her gang teaches everyone is parkour. Parkour is, uh, it's I forget the the language is from but like it, it translates into free running basically and it's uh using your body and your momentum to just scale over stuff so rather than run around obstacles you're climbing and jumping over them you see videos of this and people are like climbing up buildings and stuff and it looks like magic when you're watching it i actually took a class on that like 10 years ago and they teach it at my daughter's my gym class like it's a very safe version of it obviously but it's all about using your momentum to just constantly move forward so like when you're if you land off a big jump and you you land in a roll then like the impact distributes so you don't get hurt and you can keep moving forward and you can scale up by like jumping off of corners and propelling yourself upward and that sort of thing. So it, it, it makes sense as a survival skill. And for any video game players out there, I mean, it's basically what Assassin's Creed is all about. But it, it makes sense in a apocalyptic world where there's you know all these empty cities while people are in quarantine. If you're going to scavenge, that is the way to go because that gets you to the items faster. And then also if you're under threat from competitor, then you can probably get to safety faster or get to the resources that you want faster. Well, being able to fly up walls and bounce off them the way Moira does is a pretty nifty skill. Yeah. And it's fun to write too, because it's very visual. So it's a, um, in a story that is mostly about feelings, it provides a little bit of action in there. One theme of your story is grown-ups treating kids badly. Moira's dad really exploited her as a teenage pop star. And Krista, as you said, had a neglectful alcoholic mom. And then even Rob. And I was thinking about this because really in both your books, Here and Now and Then, and A Beginning at the End, you have dads who have secrets that ultimately prove hurtful to their kids. Now, both these dads are not like the alcoholic mom or the exploitative, Moira's exploitative dad. They're decent people. But you're clearly interested in adults who, on some level, fail their kids. And I'm curious, why? Um, that is, so that's a good question. <laughs> I'm, uh, so I wrote this draft originally. This is before my wife and I even wanted to have kids, really. Um, this is like 2011, 2012, and we didn't start seriously thinking about it until like 2013, 2014. Like my, our friends thought we were going to be the friends that didn't have kids. I, I think part of it is in storytelling, you're looking for like the highest emotional conflict. And I don't think I could write romantic conflict very well especially not as a key driver of a story. So from there, I, I looked at, okay, what are the most intense types of relationships to have? And that would be like parent-child. And so with Moira and her stage dad, there is a flashback moment, which I hope provides some level of clarity as to why he's like that. I mean, he's a pretty bad dude, but there's 
there's an understanding why someone would shift into that. And uh, with Krista's mom, you, there's not as much of that, but you see that like it's a cycle of abuse, which you know some generations just don't break out of. With Rob, it was very very important for me to to establish up front that like he has made a choice and he knows it's bad and he is working to reconcile but he doesn't have the tools to do that and i wanted it to be sympathetic and so i worked through that very carefully even before it got to like my agent and my editor like back when it was an early draft it was really important to show sympathy for this to, to make it a very human choice as to like why would someone do that? And you have to think about like the most extreme circumstances you're 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 looking at a, a quarantine where people are dying left and right, and this you know really upset, screaming year and a half uh, little girl wondering what's going on. Why would Rob make that choice? And hopefully the the circumstances come across as extreme enough that you could see it. Well, one can certainly have empathy for him because as Sunny grows and believes that her mother's still alive, of course it gets harder and harder for him to find the right way to tell her the truth. That's one of the, the core conflicts that kind of, you know, comes to a head and starts driving the story is, is the way that others start to discover that and the consequences of it. So in this world, there is, it starts with articles and like historic speeches and things that you get from like the president and the mayor of San Francisco, where they talk about how are we going to, keep society going and one aspect is focusing on trying to keep the traditional family unit together and when i say traditional we're talking about like parents and children like i I wanted to make it very clear that like you know lgbtq is is fine in there as long as the parents are there like you know so the the that level of discrimination i would hope in a pandemic situation people are past that's the world that i would like to see if everyone was dying but the idea of like a nuclear unit of uh you know keeping people together like the the government the skeleton government that remains sees that as one of the the ways to to move forward and so like that's highly emphasized early on and because of that there are new rules and measures in place to try to make sure the children are are staying healthy and guarded which leads to some boundary overstepping and that creates a conflict with someone like rob who has told a very very bad lie for reasons that can be empathized with one could argue that your book is say less science fictiony than a lot of books that would normally fall into the category. And this is something we discussed with your first book, too, Here and Now and Then, because I remember you telling me that it was initially difficult to find a publisher because some people said it wasn't science fiction enough for a science fiction publisher and it was too science fiction-y for a non-science fiction publisher. And as I was reading a beginning at the end, I thought you are kind of creating a new space in the genre for this kind of book. You know, it's got a very human story. And of course, lots of science fiction books have human stories. I mean, if they're humans in them. But in a sense, the pandemic is kind of the backdrop. It's the setting and it creates certain exigencies. But the meat of the story is about the relationship of these main characters. And in a sense, it could have happened at a different time and place, too, without the pandemic. Of course, something stressful would have to be going on, maybe a war, maybe something else. Yeah. But I wanted to ask you about that. I mean, how do you see it? I, as I said, I see you stretching the genre in a positive direction. 
but how do you see it? These are the kinds of stories that I always really like. I'm doing a lot of rewatching of Star Trek The Next Generation with leading up to, you know, the new Picard show coming up. And but one of my favorite episodes actually has very little Picard in it. It's called Lower Decks. And it's a slice of life about four ensigns as they're trying to find their place on the Enterprise crew. And they're 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 terrified of, you know, the lovable cast that we know from the show because they're they see them as senior officers. And so, you know, they're talking about like, you know, who's going to get a promotion and what can I do to get noticed by this officer? And then it takes like a, a little dive as one of them gets recruited into some espionage. But it's one of my favorite episodes, and I think it sums up, like, I really like the intimate, almost a, you know, it's a tale about relationships. And it just happens, that episode just happens to be set on the Enterprise D. I would say a lot of my work, the stuff that has sold and the stuff that has not sold, really focuses highly on relationships. The relationships are what drive the story forward. And with a little bit of tweaking, you could move it around laterally into a different type of backdrop. They're just the backdrops that I find interesting at the time. I I think at some point I may venture out into something that's a little bit more hard sci-fi. Like I I love space opera and maybe I'd want to try writing that someday, but my wheelhouse really is character-driven science fiction it it, the characters have to come first i know there are many writers whose first books or or an earlier book that they've written doesn't get published until after a later one and that's the case with the beginning at the end too isn't it you wrote this before here and now and then Mm -hmm. but it was here and now and then that came out first yeah, this was the first book. I actually found the chat, the Google chat, where I came up with the pitch and I sent it to my my critique partner. I said, what do you think about this idea? <laughs> and that was, it, I think it was September 2011. And so the idea was like at the time, I'd been trying to write like these character dramas and it's contemporary and it just wasn't working. I was getting kind of bored with them. And I was talking with my critique partner. I said, like, what if I just put it against you know, the backdrop of sci-fi that I really love and that I know really well. And I thought, I said, like, I'll never get an agent with this. Like, no one's going to want to try a mashup like that. And she said, well, why don't you just do it? And at the very least, you'll, you know, have worked on your craft a little bit. And, you know, you can say that you failed doing, you know, what you wanted to do. And so this manuscript was originally called The Pause. And I think if you read it, you'll see why, like thematically, like it's really about a world that's paused. It's about people who are paused because they experience trauma. I knew that the the title wasn't that great, but in publishing titles change all the time. So I, I wasn't that worried about it. But so I wrote this around 2011 and did a lot of revising around 2012 and sent it out to agents. And it got a lot of requests based on the pitch. I think the pitch itself is really unique, but it didn't obviously land an agent. So I shelved it in around 2013. I started working on Here and Now and Then. And I signed with my agent in 2015. And my book was on submission with publishers for, I think, 20 months total, something like that. And during that time, after a few months, it's everything's about like what's next, right? Because if, um, if, that, if Here and Now and Then didn't sell, and then we had to put something else out there. And so my agent found this off my shelf and he said, I really like it, but you need to, uh, you need to change some things on it because it's, it's not working as it is. And I knew it wasn't working at the time. I just couldn't identify what it was. And so my agent told me to read Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel, 
with the specific look at the structure of that book because it flips around a lot between flashbacks and present day and there's multiple points of views and there's a lot of news articles and historical bits and pieces that are sprinkled throughout to, to do the world building. And he said my homework was to apply that Station Eleven narrative model to this book. And so we did that. That was the hardest revision that I ever did because it was originally Krista and Rob, two points of view. And then I split it out to four points of view. And then in doing so also added all of the flashbacks in the book were added in around 2016. And if you look at the the text count of that, I think that's about 20% of the text is flashbacks, which means that a lot of stuff had to be edited out structurally. Things had to be consolidated. Uh, and then you have like the speeches from President Hirsch and all the other little news bits that fly in there. And then the little side story that's told through news articles about the uh, the Greenwood cult. Uh, and that ties into the very, very end of the story. So all of that was new and I had to shove out old pieces that weren't working and I also I just became a better writer during that time. So there was a lot of revision happening like 2016, 2017. In early 2017, my agent and I had an agreement that if I didn't sell here and now and then by around May, then this book would go on submission. But then as it came to that time, my editor, my agent said, I've just talked to a few new editors who sound really interested in your pitch. So let's hold off. And I reluctantly agreed. Uh, I was very like kind of devastated at the time because I was like, I just got to move forward. But that's who we actually sold it to. And it was a two book contract. And so after we finished all the edits for um, Here and Now and Then in early 2018, then we uh, I sent her this and she purchased it and she pushed it a little bit further in all the ways that it needed to be. So, yeah, this book has been through a lot. These characters have been through a lot, both in universe and in the real world. Well, Mike, you are an inspiration for anyone who has a dream to do something. I mean, writers specifically, but really anyone, because it's really admirable that you have stuck with this and been willing to rewrite it and to take all this input and to turn out another book. I mean, it's really, it's a great story. And, uh, you know, I got a glimmer of it the last time we spoke. And, you know, with these two books together, it's really an amazing, wonderful achievement. Well, thanks. I'm 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 really lucky that the the marketplace has turned to embracing more of these stories. I think you you really see that. And in fact, a lot of the guests on on your podcast, uh, Pun Shepherd and Hannah Perry and you know uh, uh, Kay Chess, like I would consider them all peers in this subgenre of you know we jokingly call it amongst each other's science fiction with feelings, which is basically what it is. It's like these character tales that. Uh, in some way could be turned into, you know, move laterally into a, a way that could be told in another genre, but they work in sci-fi and they're really, really character driven. So I don't think that existed 10 years ago. Uh, it was only from like maybe 2015 onward that you start to see this really kick off into the the public consciousness. And I think a huge part of that is actually Station Eleven. Like that that made a really big impact that people would, were willing, that literary readers were willing to accept sci-fi tropes. Wow, interesting. Yeah, I was going to ask you where you, if you could pinpoint uh, why or how that started and you answered the question before I could even ask. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, Station Eleven has gotten brought up a lot in, like, as I talk to media about um, about this book, both as a direct influence in, you know, 
the the structure and also the fact that it's post-apocalyptic and um but also as like a turning point when i think you start to see the uh, publishing start to embrace moving out into different genres and i think you see that mm-hmm. in a, a lot of other mediums where they um you know our biggest movies now are all influenced by science fiction or fantasy um, our biggest movies and tv shows and there was an evolution to get to that point that it could be accepted as a as a storytelling uh, you know genre that had true character work and true feelings tell me what's next i mean in this case after here and now and then you had a beginning at the end in your back pocket so when you look forward what do you see and what are you working on so earlier this year, or I guess earlier in 2019, we announced a new two-book deal with Mira Harlequin, the first of which is a story called We Could Be Heroes, which I just turned in about two months ago uh, and am awaiting some the edit process. We Could Be Heroes is a little bit lighter than a beginning at the end. It's a, it's a superhero story. It's about a superhero and a supervillain who accidentally meet up in an anonymous support group. And as they become friends and discover each other's identities, they decide to put aside their differences and figure out how they got their powers. It's a joy to write. Uh, These two leads, it feels like they write themselves. They have such good chemistry with each other. Um, So I'm really excited about that. And also getting to reference a David Bowie song in uh, in a title (laughs) is really big to me. So that is scheduled for early 2021. I think around summer 2020, that's probably when we'll start the usual ramp up of advanced copies and the cover and everything like that. But right now we're just in final stages of edits. There is a second book in my contract that that I'm working on and it hasn't been officially approved yet so I guess I can't really talk about it but it's a, there's a pitch that my my editor really likes and it hits on a lot of the same themes that you've seen in my work which a, a lot of stuff about the impact of time and distance on families and trauma I can only say it also has aliens in it too so that's the big difference it has some horrible parents we have to have horrible parents too um, I you know what? I wouldn't say they're too horrible, but you can understand why things have happened because some really terrible things have happened to this family. Well, of course, horrible, but we have empathy for them. We understand why. <laughs> I can't wait to read the next one. I mean, superheroes in a support group and supervillains. I mean, it sounds amazing. That one's it's I, I think it's uh it's still very character focused, but there's definitely a, a little bit of a lighter touch to it, just in the nature of the story. It, it, there, there's still trauma in there and bad parents in there, but but uh, there's also a lot of fun in it too. So I, I think it'll be uh, a little bit of a tonal shift, but it's still. I was actually worried about that, and I sent it to Cat uh, Howard, who's who's a friend, and she wrote the amazing and unkindness of magicians. And I said, "Is this too light? Is it too different from my other stuff?" And she goes, "No, no. It actually it feels like a Mike Chen book. It's just you know a superhero." So I'm hoping that uh, that everyone will be happy with it too. Well, it's really been fun talking to you again. I'm so glad you could come back on the show. Well, thank you for having me. Hopefully, we'll do this again next year. That would be fantastic. 
I've been talking with Mike Chen. He's the author of A Beginning at the End, which is just out from Mira on January 14th, which should be two days before this episode dropped. So it should be available when you are listening to our voices. You have been listening to New Books and Science Fiction. Thanks for joining us, and please show your love by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app or outlet. And, of course, I hope you'll subscribe. Our theme music is by Michael Aaron of QuiverNYC.com. The wise and wonderful editor-in-chief and founder of the New Books Network is Marshall Poe, and the wily and wondrous co-editor is Leanne Wilson. And I am just me, Rob Wolf, author of The Alternate Universe. My website is robwolf.net, and my Twitter handle is robwolfbooks. Get in touch. I hope 2020 is going well for everybody, and you'll check back regularly throughout the year for more conversations with great writers like Mike Chen. Bye for now.